0: get both a mentor and an advocate because they're different things right a a mentor uh, is somebody that you can go to and you can bounce ideas off of and you can tell them what your goals are and see what uh, you know what she or he thinks about those um and they can advise you right that's that's one thing an advocate is a person that's within your firm or your you know your your company or your bank or wherever you are who's going to be an advocate for you people think that your excellence will um show all the time people will know how good you are and shelby is she's, she's she's quite excellent she's very smart um and one of the things i tell her is it's not enough you've got to have people who know how excellent you are and who will advocate for you
1: powered by riverside Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to the Top podcast, where we talk to world class performers about the road to the top of their specific industry arena. On today's episode, we talk to Lewis Steverson, Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Administrative Officer with Corning Incorporated. Lewis manages all legal matters for Corning and advises his CEO, the board of directors, and the senior leadership team on all legal issues. In addition to the law department, Lewis manages the aircraft operations. Global Health Services, Global Security, Workplace Services, Office of Racial Equality and Social Unity, Corning Enterprises, Community Engagement, and the Department of Archives and Records Management. Lewis further oversees the Office of the CEO, the Senior Leadership Team, and the Corporate Functions Review. Prior to joining Corning in 2013, Lewis served as Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary of Motorola Solutions and during his 18 years with the Motorola held a variety of law leadership roles across the company's numerous business units and within the corporation. Prior to Motorola, Stevenson was in private practice at the law firm of Arnold & Porter. Lewis is a member of the Colorado, Illinois, and New York State Bars. He also serves as a director on the boards for the Hemlock Semiconductor Group, Siena College, and the Big Shoulders Fund. Lewis is a member of the American Society of Corporate Secretaries and the Economic Clubs of Chicago and New York. Lewis earned a bachelor's degree in English from Siena College and a law degree from Harvard Law School. Lewis shares a lot of great information and advice, so without further delay, let's get to the show. All right, Lewis, welcome to the Road to the Top podcast. We're really excited to have you on the episode today.
0: Thanks, Will. <clears throat> Good to see you.
1: Yes, you as well. And so just for you know the audience, Lewis and I have known each other for over 10 years, if you could believe it now, Lewis. So I I know a lot about your background and it's I think this is a great platform for you to be able to share your career path with others. I mean, this is exciting for me as well, because we'll get to be able to discuss topics that we've never touched on before. And I know you have a, a lot of advice that, that keep, people can benefit from hearing. So If it's okay with you, I'd like to just, like, start to get right into it.
0: Sure. Happy to do it.
1: So where I would love to start is at uh, Siena College. So you have your bachelor's degree in English from Siena. Did you know of the career path you wanted to pursue um, ultimately going into Siena?
0: Yeah, by the time I got to Siena, I knew – Going into college originally, I didn't know exactly the career path that I wanted. I originally wanted to be a state trooper a New York State trooper. My dad was the first black New York State trooper uh, started back in 1958 and I I wanted to follow in his path, but he wasn't all that interested in me following uh, in that path. He thought it was too dangerous of of a profession. He wanted me to do something else. And so I, as you know, well, I was a I was a runner, competitive runner, for many years. Thought I was going to go to the Olympics, and then my junior year, I wound up getting a pretty serious injury in my hip, <clears throat> which uh, kind of knocked me out um, for about six months. And so I decided I needed a Plan B, and my Plan B was uh, law school. And so I decided that I would concentrate more of my energy into academics than uh, and then into athletics. And so, um, when I went to Siena, um, I I came, I was down in Florida training, came back to New York, um, and went to Siena. I knew then that I wanted to concentrate on my academics and get into a good law school. So it's a long winded answer to (laughs) to your question, but by the time I got to Siena, I did. Um, But when I first went to college, I didn't.
1: Yeah, like you touched on, I mean, you had a very successful athletic career at Siena um, within the cross-country team. I mean, what were some of the biggest lessons and challenges you faced
0: as a student athlete? Yeah, the, the ones you would expect, you know, just the, the workload, you know, when you're running – Cross country or track at that level, and, and Sienna is a D one school. It's D one. It's a very small school, but it's D one because of its outstanding basketball team, and so they kind of suck the rest of us along. And so, when you're competing at D one level, you know you've got to put in a ton of miles um, if you're running cross country or track. And I was a miler, miler and a half miler. And so, in the summer, you know you're running a hundred miles a week, and then in the fall and spring, you're, you're running less, but you're still doing doubles, right? So you're doing, mm-hmm. you're, you're waking up at 5, 5.30, you know, running four or five miles in the morning, and then you got your three o'clock afternoon workout, depending on what time of year it is, you're, um, you know, you're running anywhere from five to 10 miles in the afternoon, sometimes track work, sometimes road work. And so if you're doing that, and then you've got a full uh, workload, you know, studying as well, um, that's difficult. And I also worked full time. Uh, So I I worked, uh, although it's, it it doesn't, it's not as bad as it sounds. I worked at a place called the racket club. And so I sat at the front desk and I collected people's IDs and handed them towels. So I was able to study while I was doing that. So I was working full time, studying full time and running full time. And so um, just balancing all of that was, you know, it was difficult. In hindsight, it doesn't seem as difficult as as when I was actually in it. Um, but yet, yeah, that's kind of the that's uh, the hardest part. The hardest part of being a student athlete, I found.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people can resonate with that because it's a lot of responsibilities, and you're competing at a high level. And you know, a college like there's. There's a lot of different, I mean, college courses in itself can be extremely stressful. So managing all that, I'm sure, has helped you with time management that you've brought over to your professional career. I mean, would you say that's a pretty good, a pretty accurate statement?
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, what you wind up doing, um, well, what I wound up doing while I was in college was I prioritize things, right? And so you, you figure out what is the most important thing that you need to do in that day or in that week or in that month. Right, and you prioritize that, and I do the exact same thing. Um, <clears throat> Interestingly enough, I I do the exact same thing in my work life, but as for my work life balance, I try to do the same thing. So I, you know, when I work out now, uh, obviously I don't <laughs> work out anywhere near the level of what I did when I was in in college. Um, but I tell myself, you know, it's not a question of um, if I'm going to get my workout in, it's a question of when I'm going to get my workout in. Cause I, I still want to make that a priority. And so I typically will do it first thing in the morning. I'll do it after I get home, uh, home from work, but it's the same sort of thing, right? You just got to prioritize what you, what you think is important um, from a professional standpoint, a personal standpoint.
1: Right. Right. That's been an overwhelming theme that we've found like throughout the podcast is a lot of it's just been about balance, right? Like there's a everyone has a lot of responsibilities and, you just up, it's up to you to be able to prioritize. You know what needs to take your time because time is valuable each day. So that's I think that's really great advice. You're the next stage after Sienna. So you went to Harvard University to get your law degree. Can you kind of tell us the story of how you ultimately decided on Harvard?
0: Yeah. So um, two two ways. <clears throat> my sister, um, who was uh, I, I consider to be the smartest person in my family. Um, I come from a a pretty big family. I have six sisters, uh, no brothers. I'm right in the middle. And and Janet is the sister that's just older than me. And she's just naturally gifted. She's a very, uh, very smart person. And I always just, you know, she was kind of like my surrogate mom. And I just followed her around. And I'm so competitive, as you know, Will, that um, I didn't actually have to be as smart as Janet. I would just compete with her because I'd see what grade she got, and I would try to do better than than she did. Um, and so she went to Harvard. She graduated from Harvard Law School in 1986, and I visited her a few times while I was there, and I thought it was cool. I never really thought that I would be able to get in because, as you know, as I said, I was concentrating more on athletics than I was on academics. And um, But then at Siena, my grades, I concentrated so hard on my grades that ultimately – you know, I, I got them to the level where I could get into Harvard. And so one of my professors, uh, she was a nun. It's a Catholic school. She was a nun. And she said, you know, you could probably get into the best law schools in the, in the country if you just, you know, study hard for the LSAT and do well in the LSAT. And so I, I did. You know, I did very well in the LSAT. And, um, I, you know, I graduated uh, number one in my class. And, you know, was an all-American athlete. And so those things helped uh, you know, to get me into, to get me into Harvard.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, and I would imagine that once you get into Harvard, everyone's resumes probably look very similar, right? Because it's the top, it's the top people at universities all across the country, right? So what did that do to maybe like your mental, you know, mindset going into it? Like, man, everyone around here is really smart. Did that have any impact on you?
0: yeah huge impact it's probably one of the best things that happened to me because as as you say you get there and you look at all these other people it's a big class there's 540 students in each class still and everybody their resume looks just like yours right they they're number one in their class um they did really well on the admissions test and they've got some other thing going for them you know mine was athletics other people have other things they they worked for a while, they were in government or whatever, right? And so everybody looks basically the same. <clears throat> um, and then there are freaks, you know, people who are just, you know, blips that are just, you know, some of them are literally geniuses um, and some of them are just super smart. You know, I've got, there are a few people in my classes, as you know, who um, went on to do really great things. And those people, sitting beside those people is a humbling experience i mean there were there were times sitting in class and you know i I consider myself a reasonably bright guy and i'm sitting in class and i don't really even understand the conversation that's happening um and so that's a for me it was a necessarily humbling experience you know because you go in you kind of think you're hot stuff right you're like, well, I got into Harvard Law School, blah, blah, blah. Right. I've done all this other stuff. And <laughs> you get there and you're like, you know, I'm just like everybody else. <laughs> right. And so and and not as good as some others. Right. right. <laughs> and So you're like, mm, OK. And so for me, it was good. Um, it, it humbled me in a way that I needed to be. It's not like I was arrogant or anything, but it humbled me in a way that has served me well um, in my professional career as, as well that, you know, you're you're surrounded by people who do great things and are super smart and you know you're just one of the people that are doing those things so it's nice
1: yeah and for i mean i know you get asked this a lot but there were like you mentioned some pretty notable classmates that you had he just share you know with the audience who some of those folks were and you know ultimately i think you know what i would like to just get a better understanding of is you know did you did you were you able to form like a close study group like I'm just picturing people in law school right now, like how do you, what, what advice would you give them to like really surround themselves with people to help them get through that, that process? Because I mean, law school is very difficult. So any advice there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll start where, where, where you ended, then I'll go back to some of the people that were in school with me, uh, that I was in school with. And so the advice I gave my daughter, my daughter, um, Shelby, who, you know, um, is, um, uh, she's, she's finished about a year ago, finished at Michigan. She got her undergraduate degree at Michigan and then got her graduate degree, and now she's going to go to law school. And so the advice I gave her and that I would give to any young person going into a big school is you got to make a big school small, right? You've got to, um, and you know that as well from your experience, you got to surround yourself with people um, that you know have similar interests to you, similar values to you, and you know if you're in a school and there's you know 10,000 people there, you're not going to get to know everybody uh, unless you're super social, right? And so that's the advice that I gave her, and, and it worked for her. I did the same thing, so I, I had a formal study group, but it was pretty small. There were four of us, and I, I had three or four guys who were also track guys from their undergrad, and so we trained together the full three years. Um, and so I had a small group of those um, really really close friends that I worked out with and studied with, and they were in my section. And then uh, two other guys that were there at the same time as me, Barack Obama was in our class, and he was uh, he wasn't in my section. Um, <clears throat> they break at Harvard, they break the law school up into four different sections. And I was in section four. He was in section two. But after your second year, um, there's a lot of crossover, right? So you can take classes. And so he was in a, a number of my classes and we were both in the Black Law Students Association together and so I knew him, uh, I knew him quite well. Um, and then Neil Gorsuch, uh, who's you know, now in the Supreme Court, Eel was actually in my section. And so I knew Neil a little bit better than, um, than I knew Barack. And he also, uh, when I got out of law school, I went to Denver um, and so did Neil and Neil's from Colorado. And so, um, I knew him a bit then as well. And so the, both of those guys were in that category of blips right. that I talked about earlier, where you're just like, wow. I mean, both of them, Barack in particular, um, just has an impressive mind. You know, he's, uh, he's, he's naturally, obviously naturally gifted speaker, um, but his mind just works in an incredible way, um, and you can tell when I met him. I could tell he was going to do great things. I didn't know he was going to be president, but um, you know, I, I knew he was going to go. Uh, he was going to go far, and, and he did, and still is. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you and you have too, so you're right. You're right up there with them, Lewis. Uh- <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Will.
1: <laughs> um, okay, so after Harvard, you started your career at Arnold and Porter. Um, can you just give us, you know, some info of like why ultimately you chose to start your career there?
0: Yeah. So I, I knew initially I thought I wanted to go into criminal law. I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor, you know, as, as I mentioned, my dad was a police officer and so I've always had a very healthy respect for, and still do for, uh, for police officers. Um, but I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor and, uh, (laughs) And then when I came out with the amount of debt that I had, uh, Harvard didn't provide any scholarships. Siena did, but Harvard didn't provide any scholarships. And so when I came out with the debt that I had and saw how much money prosecutors made, I said, well, I, I can't really do that. Um, and so I, I went into uh, private practice at Arnold & Porter. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to um, have a, a, a better life work uh, balance than I saw was coming my way. Having been a summer associate at some big firms at Arnold & Porter and at, um, at Skadden, and so I went to Denver because I thought my work-life balance would be a little easier. It's a smaller office of a national firm, and I thought I'd get national practice at a smaller firm in a in, in a nicer environment than you know a D.C. or a or New York. And it actually turned out I I, I got lucky. I mean, it was a, it's a great firm. Uh, I got great practice. Um, I was, you know, I, I argued a case in front of the 10th circuit my second year, which is unheard of in a big firm, right? I mean, you, you've got to be a partner for years generally before that happens, but I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And so I got great experience in the five years that I was there, um, that I, (laughs) I, thought I was going to, but, you know, the best laid plans, you know, often go awry and it just happened to work out the way I thought it was going to work out. And I loved it. I really did. My problem with it was we were starting a family. Um, you know, I was, uh, pretty newly married at the time we were starting a family and I wanted to spend more time with, uh, with the kids and with my wife at the time. And so, um, you know, the kind of hours that you put in at an Arnold and Porter in a, in the litigation department are not conducive to spending a lot of time with your family. And so that's ultimately why I decided to go in-house.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. And I mean, from my memory with Arnold and Porter, you were working with Motorola in some capacity, like as a client. And then ultimately that's where you chose to, to move your career was with Motorola Solutions. So can you just kind of talk about how that transition took place. And ultimately when you knew it was time to leave, you know, Arnold and Porter for Motorola.
0: Yeah, so Motorola was a big um, client of the firm. And so Motorola at that time, so this is 1995. um, So Motorola was about a $42 billion revenue company. I don't know, maybe 120, $130 billion market cap, six sectors. You know, they had cell phones, they had two-way radios, two-way radio systems, semiconductors, auto. Um, It was just a behemoth. (laughs) It frankly looked a lot like what Corning looks like now, but on a larger scale. And they were, like Corning, devoted a lot of their um, resources into R&D. They had a lab, Motorola Labs, just like Corning does now. And so I thought it was a very impressive company. And they needed some help in Atlanta they had a battery division. They, they called it the energy products division, but they made batteries. Um, and at the time is when lithium ion batteries were first being used in mobile phones. And people who weren't that familiar with batteries didn't understand that lithium ion batteries, if you overcharge them, they tend to explode um, and you know catch on fire. We didn't call it that. We called it uh, rapid disassembly with emission of light and heat. Um, and so they needed a product liability lawyer. they never had a lawyer in house in that division. And that's what I was doing. Partially what I was doing was product liability. And so I went there to become their first lawyer. It was a small division. I think they were about 700 million. Um, and I loved it. I, I, I thought it was, it was fantastic. I, frankly, I learned the most about being an in-house lawyer in the two years that I was there. And I learned it from the general manager, not from my boss, who was a wonderful woman named Cindy Moreland. Uh, she and I are still friends. Um, but I learned more about being an in-house lawyer from Jerry Blanton who ran that division um, than I did from anyone in the law department. And, and, and I learned that from him because everything had to move quickly, right? And so I remember I, he asked me a question probably two weeks into me being there. And I said, well, I'll get back to you. And I, and I wrote him a 30-page memo. <laughs> I brought it into his office. And Jerry is this good old boy from Georgia, just super guy. And I put, this, I put this memo on his desk. And he said, what is that? And I said, well, that's your answer. He goes, my answer to what? <laughs> I, said, I, I, said, I said, Jerry, that's the answer. You asked for the, you know, the question that you asked, and here's the answer. And he picked it up and he threw it at me. And he goes, "Get that thing out of here." He goes, "I need the answer in two sentences. If you can't give me the answer in two sentences, what are you worth?" And I was like, Huh. "All right." And so I came back and I gave him the answer in a paragraph, and he was okay with it. Um, but that's what I learned, you know, about being an in-house lawyer. You got to move at speed, and you know, you gotta, you gotta know your stuff going in. You know, you, you don't have the luxury usually of, you know, researching for a week and preparing a, a well-crafted memo. Sometimes you, you still have to do that, um, but 99% of the time it's just quick, right? You got to give them an answer and then you got to go back and confirm <laughs> that you were right. Um, but those were good days. Working with Jerry and that crew was, was a lot of fun. And I learned a ton. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, I mean, so your transition from Motorola to Corning, I mean – as the intro of the podcast illustrate, I mean, your role covers a lot of different business units and I'm sure like, as you touched on learning about the business and the different aspects of it, like when you entered into Corning, how did you get up to speed on everything that, you know, the business, the different business units and ultimately Corning's, you know, future goals and ultimately like your role within that You just kind of talk about, you know, you step in the door of Corning, like how did you get acclimated with everything?
0: Yeah, so let me let me just back you up a second and, let, and tell you a little bit about my experience at Motorola after Energy Products, which led to being able to do what you're asking me about at, at Corning. And so what I did at Motorola was I, I decided that I wanted to become the general counsel and I had a 20-year goal. I, I, I said, I, I want to do this in 20 years. And Peter Lawson, who was the GC at the time, um, uh, took an interest in me for whatever reason and I was... I don't know how many levels down from him, like nine or ten levels down, and I I met him once, and and so I you know I was looking around and say, well, what am I going to do in this company? And I said, well, that's the top lawyer job, and so I I want to do that. And so, I, what I did was I learned everything I could about every business, and so I would if a opening came up in another division, I would apply for it and often I would get it. And part of the reason is because Peter had an interest in me and he knew what my goal was. And so they, I, I served in every single division or sector of Motorola. And then ultimately in 2010, uh, which was about, I guess, four years earlier than my actual goal, uh, right place, right time, um, they made me the general counsel um, in 2010. And then we spun off the mobility division and. You know, the, the rest is kind of history and Motorola Solutions is what Motorola Solutions is. And Greg Brown and, and that team are doing a phenomenal job with the, a much smaller company. But in any event, so that's that's how I learned about the business then, um, learned, learned finance, understood finance and its role, um, understood, you know, P&Ls and balance sheets and things like that that they don't really teach you in law school. Well, they might have classes on it, but I didn't take them. Um, and so... That's what I did at Motorola. And then when I came to Corning, um, Corning is so different substantively than Motorola that I had to learn everything I could about a completely different technology. Motorola was primarily about radio frequency technology and, I, and, and battery technology as well. And I just, I soaked all of that up and learned everything that I could about that. And then I, when I got to Corning, it's about material science, right? So it's about glass. It's about ceramics. It's about glass ceramics, right? And I didn't know anything about any of that. Um, And so I read as much as I could. I talked to the scientists. I got books, um, read about, um, and and frankly, had no idea how cool glass actually is and and the kinds of applications that you can utilize glass for. And so that was the first thing that I did. And then the second thing was, it was kind of a matrix law department when I got here. And so we had lead lawyers for each business doing various things. And so they were reporting all over the place. And so I had them all report directly to me mm-hmm. so that I could get more familiar with the business. So uh, I first learned the technology, spent quite a bit of time with um, David Morse, who's our chief technology officer, spent a lot of time with our intellectual property attorneys just to understand the product and the tech. And then I spent a lot of time with the division council for each of the businesses to understand the business and then spent time with the GMs for the business. So I didn't have the luxury that I did when I was at Motorola to actually, you know, work in each of those businesses. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got as much knowledge as I could of each of the businesses. And, um, and that's that's served me. That, that has served me pretty well. And I'm sure it will continue to. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that that's really helpful, especially for people who are, you know, starting a new job or anything like just to familiar, familiarize yourself with how the business operates, willing to get willing to get to know a lot of the different departments and just say, Hey, can you just tell me about your role? You know, like, I think that helps you get more acquainted with a company. But what are some professional and personal goals you have for yourself for the future?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I've always had goals. And my advice uh, to young people starting out, or they don't have to be young people starting out, anybody that, <laughs> that asks cares what I think, generally, I tell them that you know, you've got to have goals. Uh, it, in fact, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a professional golfer uh, a couple weeks ago, um, and he was telling me that he, he's kind of floundering at the moment. And I asked him what his goals were, and he kind of stared at me. <laughs> and I, he's a young guy. He's in his, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, what are your specific goals? What are your goals for your tournament next week? What are your goals for the year? Do you want to be, you know, top 10? you want to be on the money list or whatever? He goes, I don't really have anything specific. And I said, well, if you don't have anything specific, you don't know what you're shooting for. You know, and so I said, if I were you, I'd, I'd write down some goals. And, figure, you know, whether you accomplish them or not. And I think most of them do. He, he just seemed to be a little bit of an anomaly. And and so um, that's what I've always done. And now my, my goal, it's interesting because my, as you noted, my job has evolved so much at Corning that I haven't had time to sit and write them all out. So what's my next goal? My goals at the moment are really more related to um, to the company, like helping the company achieve its potential than me achieving anything in particular. And we're at this inflection point. the company is is just doing so well and we've got so much runway in front of us um, that we're at this inflection point from going from a smaller company. you know when I joined we were about seven billion dollars um, and this year we crossed over 14 billion. Um, and, you know, we're on our way to 20 billion in a few years and, and further than that. And so my goals right now are to help us in that transition. And we started down that path in 2020. We did um, we we modified our corporate operating model. Uh, we put in a chief operating officer, Eric Musser, who's doing just a phenomenal job. We, we put in we reorganized our businesses into this, these things we call market access platforms. And then we reorganize all the administrative functions as well. And so effectively, we divided the company into two, into operations and into um, administrative. Eric handles all of the um, operational stuff, all of the businesses and the factories. And then um, I, for the most part, handle the administrative stuff. They don't all report directly to me, but I'm responsible for making sure that they get critical review of what their goals are for the year. But, um, <clears throat> we do this thing called the corporate functions review where we pull everybody in um, periodically, at least once a month, where we, re- we start at the beginning of the year where we review um, their strategic priorities, uh, what their tactical priorities are for the year, what their budgets are, and we give them critical review throughout the year and measure how they're doing against those, which is something we've never done before and it's working out really well. So my goal my first goal is to ensure that that happens, you know, that we effectuate the new corporate operating model that we've put in place. That's a, again, a long winded answer to your question. Um, but that's kind of my, those are my goals at the moment.
1: Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's great advice in terms of goals because, you know, ultimately any position you hold within a company, like, I think if you want to be successful, you want to go above and beyond, you know, what your job description is. And, Figure out, you know, what is your role and how does it relate to the firm's ultimate, you know, goals and how do you align yourself within that overall goal? So, and I think, you know, as a as a fellow runner, like you could kind of um, sympathize or, you know, understand like, you know, a lot of people have goals to like run a marathon, right? But you can't just do it overnight. Like you have to build a training plan. You have to be disciplined and you have to do months of preparation, right? So, you know, I think, you know, good advice that you touch on with goals is you should write down your goals, but then, you know, try to build out a plan and make tweaks along the way, because ultimately it's, I think going to be your habits, you know, on a daily basis that are going to ultimately help, you know, determine success. So, you know, any, any kind of final advice that you have for people who are just starting their careers that I know, I know you've given, given a lot of advice to, um, to your daughter, but anything else that you think, you know, that you've heard along, along the way that would be beneficial?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I th- you're, you're right. Setting goals is super important, and the, you know they've got to be. They don't, you know they don't have to be huge, lofty goals, right? I mean, you, they could be simple goals, right? It could be you know your one-year, three-year, five-year plan, and then have specifics within it. And, and you're you're also right about setting a foundation. And so I, I'm constantly telling people, and I tell Shelby uh, this all the time, and Sydney. Sydney's not in the same line of work. You know, she's not aiming to be a lawyer, but she's got her own goals that she's setting. And so I tell them both, you've got to set these foundational goals and you've got to understand what it is that you're you're trying to do. And the other thing I, I tell people all the time is <clears throat> uh, if you can get both a mentor and an advocate, because they're different things. Right. A, a mentor uh, is somebody that you can go to and you can bounce ideas off of and you can tell them what your goals are and see what uh, you know what she or he thinks about those. Um, And they can advise you. Right. That's that's one thing. An advocate is a person that's within your firm or your, you know, your your company or your bank or wherever you are, who's going to be an advocate for you. I find and I tell Shelby this all the time. um, She suffers from this, as I think I did early in my career as well, that people think that your excellence will um, show all the time, people will know how good you are. And Shelby is, she's, she's, she's quite excellent, she's very smart. Um, and one of the things I tell her is it's not enough. You've gotta have people who know how excellent you are and who will advocate for you. Mm-hmm. And so when positions come up, they say, well, I've worked with so-and-so on this particular thing and, and I know that she's got these qualities and I know that she can do this and this is what we need to be thinking about for her. And when you have those within a company, they're incredibly helpful to you. So that's the, one of the one of the so the second thing I always tell young people. <clears throat> and then the third thing I tell people is you've always got to be looking for the next thing you're going to do, whether it's within your current job or your next job or your next company. You can't be afraid. Uh, and this is kind of anathema at, at Corny because we we tend to come here for life. Right. We People don't leave but you can't be afraid to think about leaving, right? We don't want anybody to leave at Coin. We want people to be here for their full careers, but you can't be afraid that somebody might leave, right? <clears throat> or that you might leave. And so I say 95% of your time, you should be spending thinking about the current job that you're in, and 5% thinking about the next job that you're going to, whether it's in the same company or whether it's even in the same role. Um, and I, I still find myself doing that. I think about, you know, what's next? What other things you know? What else can I do to help this company realize its awesome potential? Right? Can can I pick up something here? Do I need to understand something a little better there? Do I need to spend more time with so and so? Right? You know. um, And so anyway, that those are the big three things that I that I tend to tell people.
1: Yeah. No, I appreciate Louis, and thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. I mean. Just sharing your background and all the advice I think is very beneficial for everyone. So so thank you for taking the time.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's always good to talk to you.